My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is He Yong Lee, an associate professor of neuroscience at the Johns Hopkins Mind Brain Institute. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Lee. Thank you. So could you first just tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and when you decided you wanted to become a scientist? So I grew up in Korea. So um, I spent all of my, you know, student years in Korea, uh, all the way up to the undergraduate university. And then um, actually I decided to come do a graduate work at the U.S. Um, and before that I had an opportunity to actually go and do um, an exchange program uh, in at Brown University uh, for one year during my junior year. So that's when I really solidified my idea that I really wanted to do um, some work out in the U.S., especially neuroscience. And then I came back and did a PhD with Mark Baird Brown, and then I'm here <laughs> since then. So what, what, what happened at Brown that, that turned you on to neuroscience? So that was, that's why I actually am in neuroscience. If I didn't do that, I actually wouldn't be doing neuroscience at this point. So I went to Brown thinking I was going to just do one year exchange program and catch up in the work I was supposed to do in Korea. But then I realized they have a very strong undergraduate neuroscience program there, which I wasn't aware of when I actually started the exchange program. So then I decided, well, maybe this is something I should take since we didn't have a neuroscience program back in Korea, let alone any neuroscience courses at my university. So I took the neuro intro to neuro, which is Neuro 101, and that actually changed my life. Uh, Mark was actually one of the guys who was teaching it, and his lecture just blew my mind. And I said, this is it. I want to do this for the rest of my life. So that's, that's how it started. So if you didn't come to Brown for neuroscience, what made you decide to venture to the U.S.? Um, so I was actually interested in doing molecular genetics. So I was uh, interested in studying, um, you know, probably gene expression and molecular biology. So that was my passion at that point. So I decided, well, the U.S. probably has a better opportunity in terms of research. So that's why I wanted to come abroad. Sure. So as you indicated, you, you did your graduate work in Mark Baer's lab at MIT, where you studied the mechanisms underlying synaptic plasticity. And in 1998, you published a paper showing that dephosphorylation of the AMPR receptor subunit GLUR1 by protein kinase A is the mechanism which underlies NMDA receptor-dependent long-term potentiation in the hippocampus. Could you first just kind of lay out for us what was known about the mechanisms that underlying uh, LTP before you got started working on this problem? I joined Mark's lab when he was actually still at Brown, oh, so that's where my PhD from. So when I joined Mark's lab, uh, I was interested in studying synaptic plasticity because that's what really uh, got me hooked on to neuroscience is the fact that you can actually change your synapses with experience. So I wanted to study mechanisms of uh, synaptic plasticity because I had some molecular interests. So I was wondering about what to do about it. And it was actually Mark who came up to me at some point after he came from a meeting, all excited, saying that, oh, you know what, you should try to find a way to chemically induce long-term depression. And the rationale then was it was very hard to get biochemical samples to actually look at changes correlated with LTP-LTD because the number of synapses involved were very, very small. Mm -hmm. So at that point, people were trying to get LTP to, you know, to increase the, the number of synapses that can undergo LTP so they can actually do biochemical analysis. And it turns out, it, you know, a lot of people are having a lot of troubles with it. And Mark said, hey, we have this LTD, so why don't we try to do LTD and go in from the back door? That's the quote-unquote, his, um, his <laughs> words. He said, we have to go through this through a back door. So he decided that, you know, it might be easier to do LTD chemically because it requires a long train of stimulation and it might be better mimicked by chemical application, which is unlike LTP, which requires high frequency 
frequent stimulation for a very brief period of time. So I said, okay, I can try different protocols. So that's when I embarked on trying to get the chemical LTD protocol to work. So once I got it figured out, which took a long time, <laughs> we decided that we have to collaborate with somebody who can actually look at the biochemical changes because my training is in electrophysiology, so is Mark. So it, you know, fortuitously, we got in touch with uh, Rick Huguenier, who by then had found these phosphorylation sites on AMPA receptors. So back then, what was known was LTP was all about chemkinase too. So that's when John Lisman had his ChemK2 hypothesis out there, and a lot of people found ChemK2 being involved in LTP. So when we heard that Rick had these um, antibodies to these phosphorylation sites on the AMPA receptors, and one of them was ChemK2 site, we thought, well, this must be one of the substrates, so let's see if we can get a hold of that antibody or collaborate with Rick so we can figure out whether these sites are changing with our chemical LTD protocol. So we decided to collaborate, which worked out really well. And to our surprise, actually, it wasn't the ChemK2 site that actually changed, but it was the PKA site, which was the other phosphorylation mm -hmm. site that they just had, you know, also developed the antibody for. So in, initially, I was a little bit disappointed because we wanted to see the reversible changes, meaning that if LTP is ChemK2 phosphorylation, I had vetted that it was the ChemK2 site that had to be dephosphorylated, but it wasn't. So then we realized that it was really the PKA site after doing a lot of controls. So that's how we actually got into understanding that LTP actually is dephosphorylation different site than what is phosphorylated by, by LTP protocols. So that was quite kind of a, a surprise. So get, just to back you up there for a minute, when, when you started trying to develop a chemical LTD protocol, what, what different ideas did you try? What, what was the framework for going about doing this rather non-biological thing? Oh, so the rationale is that when you do electrical stimulation, you're only activating about 5 to 10% of the synapses at any one time, meaning that you know, to detect that signal in a tissue is going to be very sure, difficult. Sure. So one way to enhance the signal was to actually you know, do a massive LTD, for instance, across all of the synapses so you can actually get more signal. So we were trying to enhance the signal to noise. So we had to actually characterize that protocol and make sure it was really LTD, we're not killing the slices. Um, so it took me a long time to actually get that protocol debunked as well as convince myself that it really was LTD protocol. There weren't any chemical LTD protocols out there, so how did you come up with ideas about how to make one. So that's another story. So back then, Mark had been working with NMDA with an undergraduate. So he had several undergrads working in the lab, some of them very successful, as a matter of fact. And one of them was uh, looking at what happens to synaptic transmission when you apply uh, NMDA receptor agonist. NMDA, right? And what she's found consistently was uh, there were some times when you actually get a lot of depression afterwards. So he said, well, this looks promising, so why don't you try this and try to figure out whether this really can produce long-term depression. So obviously it was all about trying to get the concentration right because at higher concentration of NMD application, you start inducing uh, neurotoxicity. So I had to play around with different concentrations. Initially, my idea was actually straight NMDA wasn't going to be working. So I tried to pair with other uh, agonists and antagonists of different receptors. But it turned out, you know, when I was struggling trying to figure out what's going on, you know, I brought all my data with all these different drugs, and Mark actually looked through it, all of them, and said, hey, you know what, the commonality here is NMDA, so why don't you just try NMDA? And that's how we <laughs> went around to find the NMDA alone. It took me a little longer to actually convince myself that actually I was getting LTD rather than killing the cells, but again, you know, it took me about two and a half years mm -hmm. trying to convince myself that this really was real. Um, but <laughs> And it was something that worthwhile because I got to work on it. And now a lot of people are using the same protocols. I'm very excited about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So you went out to do a postdoc in uh, Rick Huguener's lab at Johns Hopkins, where you continued to study the role of GluR1 phosphorylation in synaptic plasticity, and you developed a transgenic mouse, which carried mutations on the GluR1 phosphorylation sites, which made it impossible for the for those sites to be phosphorylated. My first question is, how did you convince yourself that this mouse wasn't just going to be, uh, I don't know, so broken as to, <laughs> as to be a waste of time to do this? <laughs> All right, well, that's the conviction of Rick. I have to give credit for him. And actually, I did not develop the mouse. It was another oh, postdoc who actually developed the mouse. I was the one who characterized the mouse. So obviously, Rick was very convinced that we have to produce this phosphor mutant to, you know, study necessity because before that, we had actually published that there is a correlation between phosphorylation and LTP and LTD. But obviously, correlation is not a very strong uh, case. We had to prove that it was necessary. And in order to prove that it was necessary, we needed something that was specific for the phosphorylation site. So Rick was convinced that we had to develop these phosphor mutants that couldn't undergo phosphorylation. So he hired this postdoc, Kogo uh, Takamiya, who actually generated the mouse. And he's, you know, he's a genetic whiz, so he actually did that in a pretty short time. And uh, I was lucky enough to be on board by the time the mouse was almost getting ready, such that I was able to get the functional analysis done. I had predicted this mice not to have any LTP at all. And obviously, LTD, you know, we expected it won't, wouldn't have LTD. But again, we had no idea as to whether they would even have basal synaptic transmission at all. But the fact that they actually survived, you know, was a big surprise for us initially, because we thought, oh, they might not actually survive. But it turns out they had an almost normal synaptic, basal synaptic transmission. And the only specific things that they were effective of was basically LTP maintenance as well as the lack of LTD. So that was kind of neat because that also allowed us to actually go and find the mechanisms because if it had more widespread deficits, we definitely would not have been able to figure anything out. So what did you end up finding about the LTP and LTD in these knockout mice? So these mice lack LTD, but they still have LTP normally initially, but then they rapidly decay. So they were unable to maintain the LTP to the wild type level after about two or three hours. So that was a big surprise for me initially because I had expected LTP to be completely wiped out similar to the ChemK2 knockout, but that wasn't the case. So we had to say that initial phase isn't dependent on the phosphorylation, it's just the stability of LTP depends on the GLUA1 phosphorylation. So that's what we know. Next generation of mice were single phosphor mutants, and those ones we found further that serine 845, which is a PKA site, is indeed necessary for LTD. But LTP can be supported by one or the other phosphorylation sites. So as long as you had one of the sites phosphorylated, you were able to maintain LTP normally. So that was, again, uh, another surprise for me because I thought for sure it was a ChemK2 mutant that was going to have the same defect as a double. And what about their behavioral differences? What were these mice able to learn and, and not learn? So basically, we tested them on uh, Maurice water maze. This was done in collaboration with Michael Gallagher's lab. So the, they did the standard Maurice water maze task as well as the reverse training. And they learned normally in the Maurice water maze, except that they couldn't retain their memory. Basically, when you have a probe trial after a few days, they actually perform really bad, but initially they perform normally. Mm -hmm. But the other striking phenotype was that when you change the location of the platform in a uh, reverse uh, training paradigm, they actually couldn't find a new location. So that sort of suggested to us that it's the maintenance of the memory that's important, that phosphorylation is important for maintenance of the memories. 
but also it's uh, for the flexibility of the memories. So once you store one memory in order to change it into something different, you need the phosphorylation sites to be able to regulate that. So if you didn't have the regulation, then you couldn't make this memories very flexible. So that's one thing we learned from those mutants. Since then, has anybody looked at, at the kind of structure of place cells and, and that kind of thing in these kinds of mutant mice? Do they have form normal place fields and, and such? That's something I can't say. I haven't seen any papers out yet, so hmm. we'll see. So earlier this year in your own lab, in collaboration with uh, Patrick Canaldo's lab at the University of Maryland, you found that visual deprivation leads to changes in excitatory synaptic transmission, not only in the primary visual cortex, but also in other primary uh, sensory cortices as well. Somewhat surprisingly, you also found that auditory processing can be improved in adult mice simply by putting the animal in the dark for a week, suggesting that while critical periods prevent large changes within a sensory modality, multimodal sensory plasticity can still persist into adulthood. Could you describe this experiment in a little more detail and talk about what it means for our understanding of how the brain adapts following injury or other experiences? Sure, yeah. So the way we actually did that was to figure out what happens when you deprive vision temporarily. So this was actually based on our initial studies uh, that was done a, a lot a lot little while ago when I first started as an assistant professor. So back then I was trying to figure out what happens to the visual text and have visual experience because I uh, did all of these phosphor mutant studies as well as role of phosphorylation in the hippocampal plasticity. But one thing that really frustrated me was that in the hippocampus you don't really know what the direct inputs are because they're so removed from sensory experience directly that you don't know what kind of information is actually trickling there to produce the plasticity. So I decided to go back to my roots where I've learned about visual cortex plasticity in, in Mark Baer's lab and I say, well, that might be a better model to actually correlate this with in vivo sensory experience. So uh, when I studied my own lab, I decided to look at what happens with the sensory experience in terms of the amperes of the regulation. And what we found was actually Again, I was surprised to see that uh, not only does the visual cortex uh, amper receptors change, but when you deprive vision, you start seeing changes in the somatosensory as well as auditory cortex. So we published that in 2006. So when you say changes, what, what kinds of changes were you observing? So basically, excitatory synaptic strength changes. Mm -hmm. So in the visual cortex, they strengthen their synapses in a homeostatic mechanism, meaning that if you don't have inputs, then you're upregulating all of your synapses globally to compensate for it. In the auditory and somatosensory cortex, we found that actually synaptic strength goes the opposite direction when you don't have vision. This is again looking at the superficial layers of the cortex. So we try to follow up on that with this new study to see what is happening there. And one of the things we noticed on the way, you know, another study we did with a graduate student, is that these changes actually require input of in the other senses. So if you deprive vision and you don't have whisker inputs, you don't see changes in the barrel cortex, which was kind of surprising for me. So we realized maybe there's something going on in terms of the feedboard information transfer in the remaining senses when you don't have vision. So that's why we concentrate on the thalamocortical inputs in this new study, because those are the ones that actually bring the sensory information directly to the cortex. So we decided to look at that first. So now when we looked at the thalamocortical synapses, what we found is that yes, they do undergo changes, but actually they actually get stronger in the auditory cortex when you don't have vision. And again, this was a surprise for us because we had expected the changes to be the same way as in the superficial layers, which is a reduction in synaptic strength. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, it was an interesting finding. So we decided to see what could this mean? What does it mean that you're getting stronger thalamocortical inputs to the auditory cortex? And one of the things that daunted on me was that we have to look at in vivo. So that's where, where we brought in Patrick Connold to help us with in vivo recordings. And we decided to look at 
what's happening to the receptive fields of these auditory cortical neurons. Because one of the predictions is that if the feedboard information is getting stronger, then you should be able to have a better uh, processing ability of the auditory information coming in. So that's uh, what we found with in vivo recordings. So that was kind of reassuring that actually uh, it does have a functional impact in terms of the coding uh, part of the sensory experience. We're currently following up on that and seeing what's happening, what else is happening in the cortical circuit because it seems like depending on the layer and the inputs, you have very different adaptation due to this visual deprivation. So weirdly, the auditory cortex is in the normal situation is, is maybe not as tuned to auditory input as it could be. That when you remove the visual inputs from auditory cortex, the auditory cortex is more reliably encoding information about auditory stimuli. Is that right? So the way we see it is that obviously in the normal animals, there's very little evidence that A1 neurons especially have any influence by vision. All of the inferences that we know are sub threshold in nature. So there are modulatory information coming in that carries visual and tactile information, but nothing that's actually a supra threshold. Mm -hmm. So we know that there's something coming in from the other areas, but it's not directly from V1 or, you know, S1, because there really isn't direct connections between the primary cortical areas as far as we know. So we think it's coming through other brain areas, either higher order cortical areas or maybe subcortical structures that are projecting this information in there. But again, what they're doing in terms of sub-threshold modulation, uh, when you don't have vision now somehow, it's allowing the, uh, the auditory cortex to now uh, process the information much more effectively. So one of the things that actually is surprising to us is that even though you don't have direct functional impact of these visual inputs to the auditory cortex, they can nonetheless have this uh, dramatic effect in terms of reopening the plasticity of the thalamocortical synapses. Yeah, so given that, what made you look in other brain areas when you were doing these visual modifications? <laughs> so let's put it this way. It seems like throughout my career, most of the exciting things I find is by accident. Uh -huh. <laughs> so this is one of those other things. So we were not interested in looking at other brain areas. We were just looking at it as a control mm -hmm. uh, because one of the things we wanted to make sure was the changes we see in the visual cortex was specific to the visual experience and not because of some global stress that's uh, produced in the animal. So we decided to look at some other brain area that wasn't going to be influenced by visual experience. So obviously trying to find a control was another daunting task. Where do you look for a control? So initially we thought, oh, maybe hippocampus, but then somebody raised the issue that, hey, it's not actually the same layered structure. It's, you know, it doesn't have six layers like the cortex. So we had to look at the cortical region that wasn't going to get influenced by visual experience. So we said, well, we know that the primary sensory cortices don't talk, talk to each other. So we said, we should look at the primary somatosensory cortex. So that's what we initially looked at. And when we start seeing changes there, then we also moved into seeing whether it was also the case for the auditory cortex. But again, we know that it's limited to the primary sensory cortices because we also looked at the frontal cortex, which didn't change. I see. So that was kind of exciting because it seems it was very specific to the primary sensory cortices. But it still sort of works as a control in that the effect is in the opposite direction. So it's not it's not the case that every sensory cortice is being affected. Exactly. In the same way. Because it was changing in the same direction, I would have been very concerned that there was something more global going on, like mm -hmm. stress. But since it was going in the opposite direction, that's when I actually had to sit down and say, hey, what's going on? Because, you know, initially I didn't believe the data. When my students came back with the data saying that they see changes in the somatosensory cortex, I actually had to send them back and say, you must have done something wrong. Go and do more experiments. <laughs> and when they came back with new data showing the same thing, that's when I had to sit down and say, hey, what's going on here? They shouldn't be changing with the visual experience. 
So it wasn't until a little later that I realized, wait a minute, there's this thing called cross-modal plasticity. Maybe this can explain why the blind, as opposed to read Braille as well as better able to hear stuff. So that's when we actually looked through the literature to see what's known about the cross-modal plasticity. And that's where we realized that we actually had stumbled onto something very interesting because nothing was known at the cellular level back then. So we were very excited that we were able to get that important data out of just you know pure luck, actually. Yeah. So uh, finally, could you give us a preview of what you plan to talk about in your uh, visit to Stanford? So I'm going to be talking mostly about the cross-modal plasticity project because that's the most exciting part of our research at this point. So I'll be talking a little bit about our published paper uh, that was out in Neuron, as well as some of the more recent data looking at other changes in the intracortical circuitry after you lose vision. Great. And then in closing, we like to ask a, a series of rapid-fire short answer questions. So if you could go back in time and talk to yourself specifically in graduate school, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> um, I think the important thing is uh, not be despaired if the results don't turn out the way you want them to be. <laughs> and also you have to have an open mind. That's what I, one thing I've learned through my career is that you have to have an open mind because sometimes we're so narrowly into uh, getting expected results from what you think should happen. But mo most often of the times you don't get the result that you expect. You get results that are different from your expectation. And what do you do then? So you have to have some open mind in terms of trying to interpret a data that doesn't fit with the conventional paradigm and trying to figure out an experiment to quickly figure out if that's really true or it's an artifact of some experimental detail that you missed. So that's kind of important thing I would like to advise. And also because, you know, I struggled so much trying to get the chemical LTD protocol working during my graduate work. At some point, I was very down because I spent years trying to get this protocol working and couldn't get it to work, and I wasn't convinced that it was actually real. And at that point, you know, I really uh, thought that was my uh, lowest point in my life because, you know, you really <laughs> want to get out uh, when you're a graduate student. And over the years, I sort of realized, you know, that wasn't bad because you really need to struggle through to learn stuff because that's when I really learned how you have to troubleshoot for experiments when it don't work. And also, that sort of uh, builds character in a way, so you can endure other hardships that come through your way. Believe me, there'll be much more difficult things right. than experiments not working. <laughs> so I think a graduate school life is the time when you should be going through your hardship, because later on, mistakes are much <laughs> difficult to mend. That's what I realized. Just looking back, what I've struggled during graduate school actually was a big benefit for me in terms of trying to get my career going. Because, you know, anything that I bump into, I say, hey, I've gone through that in graduate school. So I can do this, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you spent quite some time at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. So going back to your days as a postdoc, what mo most intrigues you about the university and the surrounding Baltimore area? What are some of your favorite spots to hang out? <laughs> so Baltimore, um, a lot of people have mixed feelings about Baltimore. When I first arrived, I thought, oh, this is horrible because I was coming from Providence, which is a really nice city. But everybody told me it grows on you. And actually it does. I mean, Baltimore is an old city. It has its own characters. It has pretty nice restaurant and bar scenes. And as a graduate student, you know, going out on a weekend for a beer was really a lot of fun. So Baltimore has lots of advantages there in, in terms of, you know, things were cheap, you know, compared to other big cities. And they have lots of neat spot because uh, it's an old city, so you can almost find almost anything that you want. So that was kind of nice. So I like living in Baltimore. Uh, the most exciting thing about being at Hopkins is that it's such a, a very unique place. So I was very lucky that I was actually at both Brown and Hopkins because both places, I think the neuroscience departments are very collegial and very friendly. And that's a combination, I always take it as, you know, for granted, but I know it's not everywhere. So I'm, I'm really happy that I'm here because the colleagues are great and they're not just 
colleagues, they're almost, you know, they're friends. <laughs> you, you, you talk to them about your daily life and you can just walk into anybody and talk, start talking about anything that you want to talk about. So that's an exciting thing to do as a scientist because obviously you're not just working, but you also have to have a life. And in my case, I handle work-life relationship by merging them together. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so every lab has its own particular culture and, and traditions. What, do you have uh, any particular oddities about your own lab's culture or traditions? So when I started my lab, I decided that I should have a tradition because everybody says that you should have a lab tradition. So I didn't have one until I actually went to give a seminar at NI and the NICCD. Uh, and actually, I walked into one of the professor's office and I saw a whole bunch of, you know, champagne bottles on the shelf. And I said, hey, what's going on here? I mean, we must have a lot to celebrate. Said, oh, yes, I have a champagne whenever a student, you know, does something good. So I said, okay, that's a good idea. Maybe I should start a tradition that I should have a champagne whenever I have a paper with students or postdocs. So that's the tradition I have. So whenever somebody from my lab publishes a paper, then we have a champagne. And I actually have a collection of champagne bottles. <laughs> and being a nerd as I am, I actually print out the abstract and put it on the back of the bottle. Oh, so it's nice. like my yeah. trophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Dr. Lee. Oh, thank you so much. And I'll see you guys soon. Yeah, and thank you all for listening. As many Stanford community members know, my advisor, Stephen Smith is leaving to work at the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle, Washington. I will also be moving with him to work at the Allen Institute starting most likely next fall. Therefore, Neurotalk is in need of a new host next year. We'd like to invite anyone who is interested to contact me at fcolman, F-C-O-L-L-M-A-N, at stanford.edu. In order to encourage people to consider taking on this role and to express my appreciation for the opportunity, I'd like to take a moment to express what a pleasure it has been to do this show. First and foremost, Although it's my voice you usually hear, Erica, Mark, and I work as a team to put this show together. The three of us collaborate on doing research on the speaker's background and putting together questions that we hope will elicit some interesting stories from our guests. Erica, in particular, does a tremendous amount of the heavy lifting, not only with question development, but also doing the bulk of the editing, including subtracting out many of the awkward ums and stumbles of my speech. Erica and Mark will continue to be a part of the show next year, and so whoever steps in to host will continue to have their amazing support. Second, for me, this has been an, an amazing opportunity to meet and chat with a wide variety of important neuroscientists, all of whom are pretty interesting people. Over the course of the 30 or so interviews we've done so far, I've gained a greater appreciation for the breadth and variety of research that is relevant to our understanding of the brain. It also has given me a taste of how truly diverse the trajectories of scientists are, not only through their science, but also through their lives. Hearing about unemployed and reformed rocker Jeff Isaacson cold-calling Dick Chen at his office at Yale, or hearing about Yishi Jin growing up during the Cultural Revolution, looking for even partial pages of textbooks to learn about science, has been tremendously interesting and really inspiring. So I encourage anyone who thinks they might be interested in this job to, to get in touch with me. We'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Lauren Luger, a group leader at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at Genelia Farm. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senior, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuritewest.org.